Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Not from the stars do I my judgment pluck. And yet methinks I have astronomy, but not to tell of good or evil luck, of plagues, of dearths, or seasons quality. Shakespeare, Sonnet 14. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. This is episode 84, Astronomy in Renaissance England. So I've had this topic on my list of things I wanted to explore for several months, and I've been thinking that I'd do it later on in the year, but the solar eclipse in North America meant that my Facebook feed was filled with astronomy, and so I decided to move it up a bit. So first, admin. I have three messages for you this week. First, the Tudor Summit is this weekend, Sunday and Monday, the 3rd and 4th of September. It's a three-day weekend in the U.S., so that's why I'm doing it then. There's going to be 10 talks from leading Tudor historians, bloggers, podcasters. It's all online. It's all free. Go to tutorsummit.com to learn more and sign up. Next, I need to thank my patrons and remind you that you still have a day or so to sign up to be my patron on Patreon. And if you do it this month at the $3 episode level or higher, you will get a tutor planner as a thank you gift come November. So you get a super awesome limited edition tutor planner. I'm not printing a gazillion of these, so there's a limited amount. And you also get great karma from supporting podcasters in history. Hooray! I have amazing patrons. Thank you to Kathy, Jurgen, Kendra, Jessica, who also goes by Anne Boleyn, which I absolutely love. I love seeing Anne Boleyn in my Patreon dashboard. It's awesome. (laughs) Elizabeth, Cynthia, Judith, Shar, Kiva, Amy, Allison, Barbara, Joanne, Kaylee, Kathy, Christine, Annetta, Candice, Rebecca, Al, and Shandor. You guys are awesome, and I love you. Finally, the Agora podcast of the month. It's August, so it's still the Cannonball, which is a monthly podcast co-hosted by two well-educated autodidacts who are attempting to read all of the books in the appendix to Harold Bloom's The Western Canon. You can check it out at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. So moving on, astronomy. I need to note, of course, with a lot of things I do, 
like when I tried to talk about Shakespeare in three episodes. This is a brief introduction. I hope that I'll get the chance to explore some of these ideas and people a bit further in the future. But with that said, if you're into scientific history, there's a wonderful podcast by Dr. Chad Davies called The Scientific Odyssey, and I highly recommend it. He's amazing. So if you want more science history, check him out. For those of you who are familiar with scientific history, you will already know that the biggest event of the 16th century in terms of astronomy came with the Copernican idea of the heliocentric solar system. And this means that the planets go around the sun and not the other way around. Nicholas Copernicus was Polish, but he lived in Italy, and that's where he came up with his theories. A few medieval astronomers had thrown around the idea of a sun-centered solar system, but none of them were able to justify it with logic and mathematical calculations. And basically, they had access to some of the Arab mathematicians' calculations. They started to see that it didn't really add up the view of the universe of Aristotle, where everything was nice and orderly and the Earth was at the center. But they didn't really have any kind of alternative yet. So Copernicus published his landmark work on the revolutions of the celestial spheres in 1543. He died shortly after that, and it wouldn't be proven until Newton 150 years later. But even so, it had the effect of shaking the foundations of belief, both religiously and with science. It was another blow to the Catholic Church and the old order of the world that we see falling down during the century. Thanks to a perfect storm, the new ideas could be disseminated easily because of the printing press. And for the rest of the 16th century, astronomers and mathematicians would be occupied with proving or disproving the Copernican model. And I have to say, there are a number of events that it's like a historical perfect storm. And I'm going to talk about some of them. But there are some things that you're going to look at it and say, how could the disillusion of the monasteries affect the way England saw Copernicus? And I'm going to talk about that. And it's one of those things with history, when it all comes together, I literally have goosebumps as I'm talking about this. It's like what I love about history is seeing these movements come together and kind of the fruition of things. So stay tuned for that, okay? So let's step back before 1543. Medieval astronomy started to take off in the 11th century. That was as the astrolabe hit the European circuit. Astronomy was taught at universities in Europe, but it was still influenced by Plato and Aristotle. The Aristotelian view of the universe, which is that the Earth is an unmoving sphere that sits at the center of the universe. The planets and the fixed stars move uniformly around the Earth, and some of the medieval textbooks centered on Aristotle were still being used in the universities in the 16th and 17th centuries. So we've all heard that the Renaissance, which started in Italy, was fueled by people rediscovering these ancient texts by Greeks and Romans. And the other texts that were discovered were Arabic medical papers. The Arabs had studied astronomy extensively. The, the, it was the golden age of Arab mathematics. It's something that living in Andalusia, like I do, which has such a strong Moorish influence, there's actually in my town a palace that has these um, mathematical it's just so beautiful the way the tile workings are. And you can just see that you can almost just taste the algebra that's in this, the tiles of this palace. And it's amazing. So, you know, it was the, a huge focus of the Arab world was in mathematics and specifically also in, in medical textbooks. And they were particularly interested in astronomy 
because of the fact that often certain constellations were linked to certain body parts. So certain zodiacs corresponded with organs in the body. So that was something that the Arabs were very interested in studying and having those astrological forecasts. But it's important to put some of these changes of the Renaissance into the context of two major events. And this is still before our time period, but we have to go back and understand these two events if we're really going to understand science in the 16th century and the 16th century in general, uh, which was so much of what history was of the 16th century leading up to that was a culmination of these reactions to these two events. The first is the Black Death, and that was in the 14th century. And on the surface, it might not seem like an obvious connection between nearly half the population dying of the plague and the development of Copernicus. The immediate effect of the Black Death was that there was a massive labor shortage. And what that meant was that new technologies had to be invented to help save labor. So we see a great number of new technologies culminating in the printing press. The printing press would be key in disseminating the information between scientists around the different universities and the various responses to Copernicus. It's impossible to underestimate the role of the printing press in fueling the scientific advances of the 16th century. And the printing press could re- really can be traced directly to the labor-saving devices, the new technological advances that came out of the Black Death. The next major event that puts this into context is the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks in 1453. Now, Constantinople was a Christian city surrounded by Ottoman Turks, and as the city was lost, many Christians fled to Italy. They brought with them original Greek and Roman texts. Now, many of you may know that Constantinople was the hub of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. So while the western part of the Roman Empire fell, and I'm simplifying this greatly, but while the western part of the Roman Empire fell, the eastern part stayed alive and thriving in Constantinople. And so all of those texts were there. And so as these Christian scientists are fleeing, they're bringing with them these original Greek and Roman texts that had been in the libraries in the city. Previously, many of these volumes had only been available through Arabic translations. And suddenly there was this huge influx of Christian scholars to the European universities carrying with them original source material. This is a huge deal. So that brings us to the early 16th century. Both Spain and France had consolidated their smaller kingdoms into larger centralized nation states that we would recognize today. We see some stability after the end of the Hundred Years' War and the Spanish Reconquista. And rather than spending our money on war, we can now spend it on things like exploration, books, and learning. Hooray! We have universities that are teaching material that is literally a thousand years old, but with new information coming in at a much faster pace than people can really keep up with, thanks to these new texts that are being disseminated and the technology that's making that possible. So the general consensus is that the earth is fixed. It does not move. All of the planets, the sun, the other stars, they all circle around the earth on fixed planes. If the earth was moving, surely you would be able to feel it, no? 
Also, a major argument against the movement of the earth at this time was that if you shot an arrow straight up into the air, if the earth was moving, the arrow would be expected to land in a different place, right? Because the earth would be moving very quickly as the arrows up in the air. But it never did. So therefore, the earth wasn't moving. It's interesting because I'm really into astronomy right now and into the stars. And it's largely because where I live in Spain, we have a very dark sky and I have a huge sky. I'm very lucky. I live on the side of this valley that has no light pollution. And I see pretty much the entire sky. And so I watch a lot of YouTube videos about the stars and the Hubble telescope and all this kind of stuff. And I'm always out there with my binoculars and stuff like that. So through the rabbit hole that is YouTube, I've come across all of the flat earth people. And I had no idea this was even a thing. It's just it started popping up in my recommendations on YouTube. And I clicked on it like, what's this? And there's a guy who took a level onto a plane. And he said, you know, if the earth was, if the earth wasn't flat, if it was round, then the plane would be flying around too. And so the level would be off. And so he you know, took this level up and kept it and filmed it the entire time and put it on YouTube to show that the earth was flat. And it's just interesting because this argument around the arrow going up, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking about this guy with his level on YouTube. And don't go watch his video because don't give it more hits. <laughs> like, he doesn't need more hits. He doesn't need ad money off of you watching his video. Just know that it's like a thing. So anyway, there's a whole world out there of flat earthers. I had no idea. But I got sidetracked. This, all of this, this, this experiment of the arrow shooting up in the air and having it not come down at a different place. This was, of course, before Newton proved the existence of gravity, the laws of motion, and confirmed the Copernican view of the solar system. Now, people had questioned Aristotle from the get-go, but the problem with questioning Aristotle is that once you start to poke holes in him, you poke holes in everything. So I've heard it discussed, I've heard it called that Aristotle, his theories was actually, it was a theory of everything. It's like a puzzle that fits together very neatly. And if you start to say that one piece is incorrect, pretty soon you're poking holes in everything. The earth, the planets, everything fits in Aristotle. But as soon as you pull one piece out, the whole thing collapses. So that's why people had always been nervous about poking holes in it, especially if they didn't have anything to replace it with. So along comes Copernicus. His teachings found a home in England thanks to the unique situation of the English church. So the Lutherans didn't really like Copernicus, and the Catholics really didn't like Copernicus. But England had something that no one else had. England had John Dee. John Dee is a curious person. I've mentioned him in passing in other episodes. Specifically, I think I talked about an episode, an episode on trade and exploration with him. He was a mathematician, a scientist, and a cultist. He was one of the last great men of this generation before the scientific revolution, where scientists could be expected to study the stars in order to cast horoscopes, where the hunt for the philosopher's stone was a major impetus in scientific advancement. The occult and hard science were intertwined in ways that we would find difficult to believe. John Dee had one of the largest libraries in Europe. He also had a conjuring table. A side note on the word occult. It comes from the word 
Ocu. It comes from the word occultation, which is an astronomical term describing an event that occurs when one object is hidden by another object. Pass. Let's just do this. A note on the word occult. It comes from the word occultation, which is an astronomical term describing an event that occurs when one object is hidden by another object that passes between it and the observer. It has no bearing on this discussion. I just think it's an interesting side note in linguistics. So in many ways, England was unique in astronomy because England had John Dee, who was open to these new ideas. England also had Elizabeth I, who tried to kind of straddle both faiths. So in many ways, England was unique in astronomy because England had John Dee, who was open to these new ideas. England also had Elizabeth I. She was trying to keep both faiths happy to a certain extent. She was trying to keep the conservative liturgy in a certain regard with the... Hmm. So in many ways, England was unique in astronomy because England had John Dee, who was open to these new ideas. England also had Elizabeth I, who had a blend of Protestant and Catholicism that really didn't make either side particularly happy. So let's talk about religion. Why were these Copernican ideas so threatening to people? Well, if you believed a particular thing for 1500 years, you would have a hard time letting go of it too, right? But even more, the entire way that people understood their relationship with God was that humans were God's unique creation. Humans were made in the form of God to represent God. Humans were special. Therefore, everything revolved around the special place that God created just for humans. The stars were permanent and fixed and ruled by God alone. If suddenly you're not at the center of the universe, or if the movements of the heavens are guided by mathematics rather than divinity, well, what does that say about your relationship with God, about the special place that God created just for you? If you're just one more planet moving around the sun, and you're governed by the laws of mathematics, how completely normal and unspecial and undivine is that? So this was very threatening to the church in particular. The church was extra specially vulnerable during this time, thanks to the Reformation, and this was just one more threat to them. But let's go back to the first mention of Copernicus in England. There was a Dr. Robert Record. He was a Welshman from Tenby, Henry the Tudor country, who, was, who he published The Castle of Knowledge around 1556. This was meant to be a primer in astronomy. And while it didn't talk much about the new Copernican ideas, it did mention the idea of a heliocentric solar system, and it didn't automatically dismiss it. This is the first time we see anything mentioning a sun-centered solar system in English. One other interesting side effect of the Reformation during this time was that Henry VIII, when he dissolved the monasteries, here I'm getting into the disillusion and how that affects astronomy, right? When he dissolved the monasteries, he set in motion the largest land grab that England had ever seen. 
Land that had previously been owned by the church was trading hands, and there was a big demand for land surveyors. So people who knew mathematics, who could survey the land and who could parcel it up, they had jobs waiting for them in England. So suddenly there's a huge influx of people who know mathematics really well. And maps and people could, who could understand them became really, really popular. It was kind of this whole pop thing to have maps on your wall and, and to have surveyors. So when the ideas of Copernicus come, there's people poised who are already kind of at the zeitgeist of things who understand it. The first English official Copernican was the son of one of these property surveyors, Thomas Diggs was born in 1546. Now, this was three years after Copernicus's book was published. He was the son of, son of a surveyor called Leonard Diggs. Interestingly, Leonard Diggs is sometimes credited for inventing the telescope before Galileo. So this is an interesting family. When his father died, he lived with none other than John Dee. In 1572, there was a major event in European skies. A new star appeared in Cassiopeia. It confused everyone because the predominant belief at the time was that the stars were fixed. Like I said, how could a new bright star just appear in a major constellation? Well, it turns out it was a supernova and it was named as such by Tycho Brahe, but Diggs was working on it in England and he concluded that it had to be beyond the orbit of the moon. This contradicted the view that the universe, the view of the universe that nothing changed in the stars. So in 1576, Diggs published a new edition of the almanac that his father had written. It's called a prognostication everlasting. He left the text written by Leonard Diggs for the third of third edition, which was published in 1556. He left that text unchanged, but he added new material and several appendices the most important was a perfect description of the celestial orbs according to the most ancient doctrine of the Pythagoreans lately revived by Copernicus and by geometrical demonstrations approved. Contrary to the Ptolemaic cosmology of the original book by his father, the appendix featured a detailed discussion of the controversial and still unknown Copernican heliocentric model of the solar system and the universe. This was the first publication of that model, really expanding on it in English. <clears throat> For the most part, the appendix was a loose translation into English of chapters from Copernicus's book. Diggs went further than Copernicus, however. He proposed that the universe is infinite, containing infinitely many stars, and he may have been the first person to, to have done this. English scientists were also in correspondence with the aforementioned Tycho Brahe. He was a Danish astronomer. He was also born in 1546. Now, when he was 14, he saw a total eclipse of the sun, and he felt called to pursue astronomy. He went to Leipzig University, which is incidentally where my father is from, the city, not the university. And he observed some strange phenomenon going on with Jupiter and Saturn that weren't on the existing tables of planetary motions. 
so he decided to produce his own tables. He traveled throughout Europe getting instruments, and it was at this point where a very famous story that he's remembered for happened to him. He lost part of his nose in a duel, and he spent the rest of his life wearing an artificial metal nose. So cosmetics of that aside, he built an observatory on the southern tip of Sweden, where he observed the aforementioned supernova. And he published his work, De Nova Stella of a New Star, which made him famous. Bry was incorrect in one thing. He tried to compromise between the Aristotelian and Copernican systems. He said that the other planets do go around the sun, but the sun goes around the earth. We also can't forget about Giordano Bruno. He was an Italian Dominican friar, as well as a poet, a philosopher, and a mathematician. He extended the Copernican model and took it even further. He postulated that each star was just a distant sun that could have its own planets orbiting around it. He even thought that there could be life on other planets. This got him tried by the Inquisition and burned at the stake. But before that happened, he managed to visit England. He went to England in 1583 as a guest of the French ambassador. He met the poet Philip Sidney. He even dedicated two books to him. He also met this circle around John Dee, though we can't find any evidence that he ever met Dee himself. He lectured at Oxford. He got into trouble with the Bishop of Oxford and George Abbott, who later became the Archbishop of Canterbury. Abbott made fun of Bruno for supporting, quote, the opinion of Copernicus that the earth did go round and the heavens stand still, Whereas in truth, it was his own head, which rather did run round and his brains did not stand still. So that's kind of a clever little thing. (laughs) Bruno did a lot of work while in England, and many of his works were published in London, and he wound up creating a lot of controversy. Some historians have actually theorized that while he was at the French embassy in London, he was also spying on Catholic conspirators under the pseudonym Henry Faggot for Sir Francis Walsingham's spy network. Bruno is sometimes cited as being the first person to propose that the universe is infinite, and he did that during his time in England. But as I mentioned, Thomas Diggs had put forth this idea in a published work in 1576, which was eight years earlier than Bruno. So we see this world of astronomers in England centered around John Dee, open and welcoming to the new learning. To illustrate how small the intellectual world in London at this time period was and how everybody was connected, I want to talk about Shakespeare and this quote from Hamlet. I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself king of infinite space. So there's a paper I found called Shakespeare's Astronomy by Michael Rowan Robertson of the Imperial College London, and it gives a lot of background on Shakespeare and astronomy. He talks about this quote. To us, it sounds like a normal quote. I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself king of infinite space. It's a bit dramatic, but it's kind of Shakespeare-y. But this idea of infinite space introduced by Thomas Diggs in 1576 was revolutionary to times which were still drenched, he calls it, Michael Rowan Robinson calls it, drenched in centuries of Aristotle's finite universe. Infinite space would have been a mind-blowing idea in the 16th and early 17th century. It's still a mind-blowing idea. I remember in college, 
sitting there and asking my professor, well, what is the universe expanding into? Nothing. Well, what's out there? Nothing. Well, what's it expanding into? Nothing. It blows. If you, if you think about it too much, it, you might make your brain explode. I'm not sure. But anyway, it was particularly brain exploding to people who were just thinking of this at that time, right? So here in Shakespeare, we may have a reference to this new astronomy, this new thinking of Copernicus, Tycho Rye, and Thomas Diggs. So there we have it. I am going to put up lots of books in the show notes. And the book recommendation for this week is Stargazers, Copernicus, Galileo, and the Telescope and the Church by Alan Chapman. So I've got a link up there. I've got links to lots of resources, including that paper with Shakespeare that I just mentioned. And I hope you will remember to sign up for the Tudor Summit. It's going to be super awesome. And become my patron if you want to support the podcast and get a planner at the same time. And I will be back very soon with the Tudor Times Person of the Month. And then after that, we're going to continue doing a little bit on food And then I've got some other fun stuff planned through the fall. Uh, Somebody actually asked me today if I was going to do anything for October, because some of you know that 1517 was when the 95 theses were posted. So it's a very important time. This is the 500th anniversary. So October is actually going to be Reformation Month, and I'm going to do a bunch of episodes. I'm going to do an episode every week on something related to the Reformation in England, which is, of course, unique to the Reformation in other countries. Every country has their own unique Reformation. So October is going to be Reformation Month for us. Okay, so that's what's coming up. Check out englandcast.com to get all of the links, to become my patron, to do everything like that, to get the show notes, all of it, tutorsummit.com to sign up for the Tutor Summit. And if you have any questions, you can get in touch with me through the Facebook page, facebook.com slash englandcast. You can tweet me at Tesco at T-E-Y-S as in Sam K-O. And yeah, I hope to hear from you on your ideas about astronomy. All right. I'll be back very soon. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.